The best thing about Bumble was the team, the the leadership, the founders. They really embrace this idea. They understand, you know, this is something we're not doing, and if we don't do it, we're probably not going to be around for much longer. It's one of those dating apps, so successful, but never nobody had ever heard of. I think when you're younger, you're less fearful.、Um, you have less to lose. You almost have nothing to lose. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people. We talk to these people about risk, risk they've taken in their lives, risk they've taken in their careers, when they paid off, and when they didn't. And on this show, I am blessed to be joined by the one and only Candice Ran. Candice, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Roy. So, Candice, we start. I think we spoke for the first time probably about a year ago. About that, yeah. I want to say, and、uh, it's been such a pleasure to work with you guys at One Seven Three, and you know, amazing to work on some projects. And I, I think、uh, we're about to launch another project with you guys in the next couple of weeks, which is exciting and really excited to see that part grow. And in terms of being led on the data side of strategy and, and working with an amazing team, there are very few people in the world who I feel as in as safe hands as I do with you. So、uh, a big thank you for that to start. Oh, thank you, Roy. That's really kind to hear. It has been a great collaboration, and、um, with entrepreneurs and founders like yourself, embracing data,、um, incorporating it in your product and services is great.、Uh, we're blessed to be part of it. Amazing. Well, I'm fascinated to, to speak to you because I think there are some amazing risks you've taken in your career. And as I always say, it's important to amplify stories of people who have defied odds, taken these big leaps, and where they've really worked out. Because that way, we can give people confidence and feel like, great, they can do it too. I'm seeing other people doing these things. So obviously, you've taken lots of leaps in your career. But let's start with moving around. You know, you've you've gone to four different places. You've lived there for lots of years. I am. Uh, in the process of moving to the US, and all the things that go with that are going through my mind. So, so talk us through, you know, your journey there and 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 how you got to here. Wow, US, that's exciting.、Mm. Yeah, for myself,、um, I guess I was a bit lucky. I, I started young.、Um, my first move was university in Australia from China, and I think when you're younger, you're less fearful.、Um, you have less to lose. You almost have nothing. To lose, and but on the other side, you have this whole new world.、Um, it's just exciting back then,、um, and that was the first time. And then second time was、um, study again. So and it's a little bit of wanting to know more about Europe.、Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I moved from isolation to another isolation. I'm not saying China is isolated, but you know, mentally, you know, it's very different. Yes,、um, it's very singular in a way. And then moving to Australia is again, you know, is is very isolated geographically.、Um, the culture is quite again quite singular. It's amazing place to be,、um, but then your brain gets bored. That's for me the the case. And I've always fascinated with the history of Europe and the moving. Here,、um, so I don't know if we can take credit for taking risk. I think that's probably not something went through my mind at the time. Is more excitement than、um, you know. It's, it's something I'm going to lose the life here.、Um, but then again, it's also comfort, right? If you have something to lose, that means you've achieved a lot where you are.、Mm-hmm. And also to think, if things don't work out, 
like back then going to Europe, I think I was a bit more fearful mm. than leaving leaving China because I was older. I had a good career going on in Sydney. Um, and then leaving that, um, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit more scary yeah. than leaving China. But then knowing that I had something really well, really good going on in Australia, I can always come back to that. Mm. So it's almost like a, you know, safety net. Yeah, absolutely. So, mm. so you went into a career in Australia and then left to go back into education. Was that a career switch or, or what led to that? Um, it's a little bit of, you know, the job I was doing at the time, uh, I, I worked for a regulator, financial regulator. Um, really exciting work, but, you know, you're learning plateaus after a few years. Mm. Um, so going back to, uh, to to do my master's was a little bit more, the brain needed some work, some actual challenges. Um, so, yeah, it's just a continuous learning, which, you know, it's still until today, even though I don't go back to school. Mm. But, you know, being data, there's new things coming out every day and continuous learning, you know, your brain, you need to exercise that muscle, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And what did you study in your master's then when you moved to Paris? Was that, um, and was your original educational background within data as well? Or? So originally I did an IT degree, so okay. computer science, data was part of that. Um, my master, I did an MBA. Mm -hmm. um, so more business, I guess is a little bit, if you do data for a while, you want to know a bit more, how can you make an impact? Yes. So understanding a bit more how businesses run, um, things like that. So that was my second. And mm. doing the MBA, another thing which a lot of people will have thought about in their lives and, and people have got amazing views in it. Some people don't like them. You know, there's there's the whole whole range of opinions there. What did it do for you? Um, in Australia, we have this saying, MBA is short for Master of Bugger All. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's not wrong, it's in a good way. Uh -huh. So, you basically learn about everything, um, but you don't go into depth about anything. Mm -hmm. So, I remember the, the program I did had 16 different subjects, um, ranges from HR, finance. Um, we also had an uh, emphasis on philosophy, so we had to take a philosophy course. Wow. Um, and, you know, for someone who is very technical, so coming from data solely, that's a mind-opening mm. experience for myself, thinking about, you know, never led a team. Yeah. Or I was an individual contributor, like I guess many people in my cohort. Um, so that... It's just understanding different bits and pieces, mm. operational side, you know, how do you, you know, do accounting, um, and investment was also part of that. Mm -hmm. It was just so broad, the topics. I would say if you have the time, definitely do it, but it's not a must have. Yeah. You know, lots of entrepreneurs, you know, pick it, pick it up in practice, which I think is probably a better education mm. than going to school. But if you don't have that opportunity to do yes. so in real life, then an MBA is actually a really good thing to do. It's interesting. And mm. did you see a big difference in your career after that in terms of doors open for you or how did it play out? Um, not, well, it led me to an internship at L'Oreal mm -hmm. when I was doing marketing, which I would probably have never um, been hired to do. Um, but in terms of um, career, I, I don't think it led to many more door opening because mm -hmm. of the degree. But because I started thinking things a bit differently um, and 
when I speak to, you know, like in the interview, I started thinking about other things. Yes. Um, and that, you know, is pretty much what led me to my next career move at Bumble, mm-hmm. um, from a technical role to more business oriented, more analytical role. Mm. Um, H- how many, because that's obviously, you know, such a fantastic story, your, your story with Bumble. Tell us about that. When, when did you enter the organization? What did it look like then versus how it was when you left? Um, so Bumble is owned by this bigger group called Badoo, mm-hmm. um, which has been um, building dating apps since before the days of Tinder. Um, it's one of those dating apps so successful that everybody, but never nobody had ever heard of. Interesting. Yeah, surprisingly. So when I joined uh, the parent company Badoo, that was in 2013. Yep. Um, and keep in mind, that's like 10 years ago now. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, that was like just when, as far as I remember, dating apps were like just picking up maybe like the year before, like that sort of time. Like that's when you really saw the normalization of it, I think. Exactly. Like, I think it's still a bit of a taboo. Mm. When I joined, um, I never heard of that company before. Um, and But it had huge amount of users already. Um, which meant they had a huge amount of data as well. Um, when I first joined, um, that was before the data revolution. Mm. Lots of things like Excel sheets uh, flying around, things are quite manual. And how many users is that app when they're still using Excel spreadsheets? Uh, I think tens of millions. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for any entrepreneur listening who says they can't do it because they're still using Excel sheets, you've got proof that that's not true. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, but... It had its challenges as well. So back in the days, data is still quite new. Mm. It's not like today, you know, everybody knows how to do it or the importance of it. Um, But when I first joined, that was the case. And obviously, you know, when you're running a business, tens of millions of users, having sales sheets flying around is not efficient. Um, and you're at a point that you really need to optimize your your game. And as you said, um, around that time, lots of dating apps starts popping up. Mm-hmm. So how do you get ahead of the curve is really, um, you know, data guiding you. Um, and the the best thing about Bumble was the team, the the leadership, the founders, they really embrace this idea. They understand, you know, mm. this is something we're not doing. And if we don't do it, we're probably not going to be around for much longer. So... Badu owned Bumble at that point, or, or how did how did it look? So, were the so the founders sold it very early and then IPO'd again later, or, or how did it work? So, Bumble is actually incubated out of Badu. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's a it's a great success story on so many fronts, like marketing wise, it, it's amazing, right? And and the fact that this fact is not that. Um, like most people don't know, mm. didn't know this. So marketing was done very much outside of U- U.S., uh, led by Winnie Wolf, the really um, amazing CEO that's currently um, uh, running uh, the show. And But the technical bit, so the app, the data side, the operational side, they are all coming out of London. So it was effectively built here, but marketed outside of the U.S., Wow. Mm. Okay. Really, really interesting. I did know that. So, and did that eventually span out into its own company then and then IPO'd at a later date? So it's actually, Bumble becomes so successful, mm-hmm. the group rebranded as Bumble. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. That's super interesting because mm. um, the founder obviously came previously from Tinder and, and the story there is amazing, which, you know, I, I've read about before. So really an inspirational leader then mm. and some that was one of the parts you really enjoyed about it. 
Absolutely. I, so I guess many people know that story uh, coming from Tinder. It isn't the best story, you know, uh, going through that experience. But we always joked it's the best career comeback. Yeah. You know, uh, when you took it, you know, um, to the next level. Mm. You know, I really turned dating around. Um, I was just at an event this morning and they talked about how women are empowered by the app. And that was the, the ethos of the, mm-hmm. the app, the brand. Yeah, amazing, amazing. No, it's um, uh, an incredible journey and and seeing where it is now, it's just just mind-blowing in terms of of the growth there. So that takes me on to what I think is, uh, uh, as far as I see, what feels like a massive risk in terms of you've got this incredible corporate track record. You know, you can probably go into any startup, into any business on a huge salary and say, yeah, great, I can go and lead this side of it you decide to make the decision to build your own agency which again i think is something a lot of people have thought about a lot of people wouldn't take that that leap so tell us about what happened there um so i think i own that decision to my co-founder robin okay um it was i feel like the major turn of my life is very much spur of the moment mm-hmm. so it's it's not much i went out created that opportunity but the opportunity presented itself and i was ready to grab it yeah and so Robin and I, we worked together at Bumble and uh, our third funding team, um, Adrian, we all came out of Bumble as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just one of those conversations, you know, we you know, went through Bumble five and a half years. Um, as you said, you know, what we built there is quite mind blowing, if I may say so. Uh, it's optimized to the teeth, you know, everything is running so well. It's like a well-oiled machine, mm. everything working perfectly. And to go into another big company, do this all over again, it's yeah, it is probably quite easy mm-hmm. thing to do. Um, but we're just chatting, and then we thought, you know what? Like we did a lot of great things at Bumble, but also we made decisions not necessarily because it was the best universal decision, mm-hmm. but it was the best de- decision given the situation sure. of you know of the brand of the. Um, the tech ecosystem we have already. Um, so we were constrained. Right? Mm. Uh, Always a lot of pragmatism within uh, within a startup, right? Exactly, exactly. So you got to do what makes sense for you, the situation you're in. And so it, it's very interesting to wanting to see more um, different scenarios. So, and we were just chatting, we were like, let's do our own thing, you know, do this for more companies. Mm. And we see how difficult it is to get started, especially earlier stages. You know, data is expensive. So many data tools out there. What do you pick? And once you picked it, um, how do you generate value out of it? You know, there's so many questions. Um, and it's difficult to, to answer if you haven't done it before. Mm. Um, and then it's expensive to have that learning. Um, for and If you're a founder in your you know, your first gig and you have a team of five, you know, small investment from yeah. VC backed. Um, it's not easy. So mm. and Roman was like, Well let's 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 do something together for more companies and we can learn more along the way, we can help more people. And I thought about it, I was like, Yeah, let's do it. 
I don't think I even thought about it. It was just a conversation. I was like, yeah, sure. See, I would have got the feeling that for you to make a big decision like that, we get all the data together, you know, it's going to be a very data-led decision, but it's great to hear that sometimes you've got to trust gut as well, right? Oh, for sure. I'm actually quite impulsive as a person. Um, data is something that comes after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to have to take the leap and then use data to guide you whether it's a good decision or not. Mm, um, that's very interesting. That's very interesting because I think that uh, the reality for many very early stage startups is you know, as soon as you can start making decisions led by data, of course you should, but there's that big, big gap between having anything which is significant enough to really form or or lead a decision and, you know, just the total need to trust the gap. Absolutely. Like, data can tell you what's happening or what happened before, Um, but all these revolutionary ideas, if you want to challenge the status quo, you wouldn't have that data, otherwise this idea wouldn't about you wouldn't be original right mm. so we need dreamers um and then data can make that dream become true more efficiently and quickly at what point do you think a startup should be looking to leverage its data into decision making um so you should pay attention to data from day one that's the thing but how you go about it is different so early stages, you think about um, what you're trying to achieve, thinking about what are the KPIs that you, you need to hit. Um, that could be anything. It could be how many people register for, for an app or how many people are using the app. So something that gave you good feedback that you have a product market fit. Um, but at the beginning, you don't need everything 100% accurate, right? It's a signal you're looking for. Mm. Um, let's say you have three different product ideas. Um, you want to gather some signals to know, okay, okay, number one is what the market wants mm-hmm. uh, and is what the market needs now. Um, we're seeing a lot of products that's fantastic ideas, but they don't, you know, come about. They, they're not successful at the end of the day, mm. not because, you know, the ideas are bad. It could be a lot of reasons, but the best way to get the feedback is from data. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Mm. And I think one of the lessons that um, I learned the first, with my first business, and I wish I'd learned before, is, you know, if you do find that out of nowhere, you do start getting product market fit, that it's a shame if you only start collecting data then, because ultimately, if you are in that place where you're starting to see the flywheel turn, or whatever it might be, you know, being able to have a scalable model that you can rely on and a data led one is so important, because trying to achieve that hyperscale, trying to get that growth when you haven't been collecting the, the data from day one is very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Like when you get to that stage is um, more features and optimization mm. as well. And we see this at Bumble as well. At any one point in time, you will have more ideas than you can possibly afford to put to the market. <laughs> and so how do you go about it? You know, you don't, as you said, you know, this gut feeling, you know it's going to be a winner. Everybody thinks their idea is a winner. Mm-hmm. And then you have like probably 10 minimum going around. And you just have to have a really s- strict and quick way to get to the answer. Yes. So MVP you know, build a small product, roll it out, see the react the reaction. If it's good, okay, we continuously build on that mm. on it. Uh, if it's not, let's kill it. Yeah. You know, you have to be ruthless. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And this is another lesson for entrepreneurs, which is why sales and marketing is so important. Because unless you can have 
a large enough, whatever that look like looks like for your business, a large enough group of users to see whether it works or not, then you're just operating in the dark in many ways, right? You know, finding product market fit is a potentially a quick, but in most cases, a multi-year battle between product and the market where they're hammering away at each other and understanding what might work. But without sales and marketing, without the ability to acquire those customers, whether they're free users, paid users, whatever it is, you know, you're not going to be able to have enough attempts to figure out what does work and what doesn't. Absolutely. That's you nailed it on the head. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's not my I will I'll be honest, I've said it before, you know, it, it wasn't just off the top of my head. Um, but no, I think it's a, a really, really interesting one. So going back to when you guys launched 173 how did you approach getting your first customers for the agency um i was quite lucky uh it was through my uh personal network Mm -hmm. so i think the bumble story was really helpful um and lots of people wanted to know um how bumble become so successful um data is just one element but it was an important element um so we literally just went out talked to people um get the words out there, um, ask everyone uh, in my network, I'm doing this, uh, semi business. Um, and that's how we get, we got started. We're quite lucky. We had two really big clients starting, um, signing with us. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I think it's, um, a great show that, you know, no matter what you've done, you can't be afraid to go out and ask your network for help. You know, there's, unfortunately there's a lot of ego out there and there's a lot of people who don't want to be seen, um, at the start of a journey, you know, everyone's happy once they've acquired all the customers but at the start, but you can't be afraid to go out to your network and say, look, I'm doing this. I need some help. Who wants to support? Because people want the support for the most part. For sure. I wish I did more at the mm. beginning. Like I think it's natural. Um, I felt that as well. I, I always thought to myself, OK, I'm going to wait for a little bit to make sure something is perfect. Yeah. Um, before I can, because I don't want to look foolish mm. I, or I don't want to let people down but the thing is don't question yourself you already know quite a lot you know um, more than you think you do mm-hmm. and there are people who want as you said they, they need they want help they um, they appreciate you know outside advice so don't be afraid even even though someone tell you no you learn something yes so, absolutely mm. so some of the biggest learning experience of my life is when I've had crushing nose you know yeah i mean it's good though i remember the my first ever investment meeting for my first ever business and pretty much got laughed out the room pretty much i mean it was a particularly harsh investor um i never think you should laugh a founder out of a room but it certainly made me reconsider everything and not in a you know throwing the toys out the pram way but just really having a deep dive into what we were doing okay why doesn't this stand up in the way it should and yeah there's a lot to be learned from the nose absolutely very humbling yeah yeah exactly that Mm. exactly that so one of the most fascinating parts of how data has changed our society but but also the perception of data within society are things like the social dilemma you know the netflix documentary all all, all these parts of data which i think are, are very valid but a lot of people probably misunderstand a lot of the controversy how do you see the way society's relationship with data has changed where do you see that going what are the concerns what are the things that people actually shouldn't be worried about um that's a really good question like what we see is the landscape certainly changing like um there's all these laws coming out gdpr uh 
can't remember the California one, CCPA. Yeah, uh, sounds in right. In the US, yeah. Um, and consumers getting more and more privacy conscious, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, paradoxically enough, they also want brand to know them mm. enough to offer personalized experience, mm-hmm. right? So if the brand don't have data on you, how do you expect them to tailor it for you? So there's a fine bi- balance there. So people want the convenience of buying things that's ready, like, you know, they're, they're presented things they need. And at the same time, they don't want to their data to be ended up somewhere they mm-hmm. they they're not aware or having the feeling they're being listened to or um i heard the stats don't qu- quote me this morning yeah um apparently every time you say hello to alexa you sign up to 258 agreement with a party wow. um that's a very efficient hello <laughs> I, exactly. Um, I just heard it this morning, so I don't know how true it is. I need to verify it. Wow. Um, but you know that said something about the the need for transparency mm. in data. Um, company, if you ask me, should company collect data? I think absolutely for the purpose of providing consumers with a service, mm. right? Um, and and that involves treating the data in a way that helps you get to these answers without intruding on mm. people's privacy. If you think about it, like if you want to sell me, like I have a sparkling water in front of me and you know that's what I like to drink, um, you don't need to know me, myself, Candice Wren, of this address, of mm-hmm. this uh, ID number, like sparkling water. You just need to know people like me mm-hmm. and you know a cohort of these people like sparkling water mm-hmm. and when you get there you aggregated data is anonymized and that's what companies need to know mm. and so lots of the things people worry about it actually doesn't even it's not part of the equation so that's really interesting because that's always you know something that i think about which mm-hmm. is um is there a you know micro segment of data just on me as in yes there is my cohort but actually, and I think most companies use data responsibly, yeah. but with the amount of data leaks out there and, and you know, you're really relying on the company you're engaged with to have strong data security, the worry is, well, can someone else build up a very accurate picture of who I am specifically and use that in whatever way? Um, so to that point, in terms of data security and data governance, uh, I, I, I think you're right. You know, most companies are responsible in the sense they had good intention, they have mm-hmm. good intentions. But when it comes to implementation, you know, there's always things to improve. Um, and in terms of knowing a, a customer, um, lots of things companies think about this third party data, right? They want to paint a whole picture, you know, where I have been this morning, mm-hmm. you know, it's useful to know. But the thing is, there's so much information within your first party data, just within your own brand, within your own products and services Mm -hmm. that people are collecting, that people are not using just yet. They're thinking about, okay, how can I, um, if a user come in, you know, I acquire them, I want to know their age, I want to know their gender, I want to know um, their socioeconomic statuses. Mm -hmm. Do you actually need those things? Like... I always say, you know, when we do a data, you know, program or strategy, people ask for everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. Can you do something about it? You know, that's the question at the end of the day. If you have this information, how are you going to use it? Um, most of the time, it's just a good to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and before you get there as well, there's a priority of things. If you're not leveraging your own data, 
Um, and, and nobody's going to know your customer better than you do. So relying on a third party in the first instance, I think it's the wrong way to go about it. Interesting. Yeah. So, and, and so, so if you, if you're at the point that the first party data, you've leveraged everything, you think mm-hmm. you know everything you could possibly know, um, how the people are using, you know, your product, the frequency, the recency, the, um, and the intensity of it. If you knew all that, you have leveraged all that, then you can start thinking about, third-party data, how to get that in a responsible way. You can ask users, you know, mm-hmm. when you build that brand trust, you can start asking people, so can you tell me a bit more so I can service you a bit better? Um, so there's a lot of things to go about it. People tend to go to ask a question, like a, a question that's too far, mm. you know, like at least like the AI thing, you know, we yeah. talked about before. Like we have companies coming to us like, uh, how do we have an AI strategy? Mm-hmm. And then we dig it dig a bit deeper like do you have a data strategy like you know how does that look like um and most you know some don't yeah they start i I can imagine yeah they start thinking about ai right away but the thing is you can't fly because before you can Mm. run you can walk Mm -hmm. right so that 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 mentality is crucial so how much do you think ethics plays a role in the way most businesses are approaching data and is it a genuine concern or, or, or does it bec- does it come like so that's funny that uh, just, just as we say they're <laughs> listening to us um there you go there's proof they are um i mean how much of a priority is ethics for larger companies when it does come to data and i know that there is a lot of um lip service being paid as there is with greenwashing and lots of different types of diversity and, and, and lots of very very important subjects but from your experience, how much of a priority is ethics? Um, to be honest with you, it's probably not the first thing people think about. The first thing is through business bottom line, mm. right? I mean, we're in the private sector, um, but you know, increasingly people are think, starting to think about it's good for business if you're ethical, right? Um, you know, when we talk about customer centricity, you know, being closer to your uh, to your customers. Trust is a main thing, right? And there's probably nothing worse could happen than erode trust than a data breach mm. or a data scandal of some sort. Um, so people have start thinking about it. Most of them have, you know, very good data security practice. Mm-hmm. And then that leaves us to the question, like, what is a right or wrong use of data? Mm-hmm. Um but I would say most commercial situations, we don't get there. You know, it's yeah. not part of the, um, unless you're you're in a specific, um, you're making decisions and the race or, you know, background of people that the bias mm-hmm. from the data or bias from how we made decisions previously in the data that get translated into your business practice, right? But that's very rare. I, I think that's a really, really interesting one. And what happens in a worst case scenario in a data breach for me as a customer? Because I think it's something which, again, there's probably a lot of alarmism around. And it would be great to understand realistically. You know, there's been, uh, I think it was British Airways a few years ago, had a big data breach. I'm a BA customer. What am I worried about if there's been a data breach with a company who holds data on me? Um. So... It depends on what types of data they have on you. So, you know, in the case of BA, I imagine your first last name, your email address, your phone number. Passport number. Oh, passport. All of those oh. details, right? So 
it is quite scary in that case because you have the ID number. Yeah. Right. Um, and at the back of that, fraudsters, if they get their hands on that, they could start applying for credit cards. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends who, you know, have their identity stolen. Wow. Um, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Absolutely. Um, but then he speaks to the bad practice of a lot of people. Like, first of all, the BA data breach, obviously. Um, but then, you know, if you are getting a credit card, why uh, why is KYC not in place? Mm. You know, how can someone possibly? This is a big bank who had a you know a credit card being issued. It was stopped at the end, but it was mm. enough to alert the friend of mine. Um, so it is scary, but it shows how everybody needs to every organization so someone has a data breach could lead to you know exposing your own weaknesses as well so in the ba sense you know why i, I don't know how their data pipeline works but not all very of, well <laughs> no <yes>. yeah yeah <laughs> that's true um but you're supposed to you know encrypt all this data you know nothing should be um humanly readable mm. you know even if you have a data bridge it should be encrypted so no one can make use of that data mm-hmm. so i might know your first name roy and that's it you know and i have this gibberish that is within your passport yes. id and i couldn't do anything about it and be a host that key to unencrypt it yeah right so that's and, but it, you know for me that's why it's quite scary because a company supposedly like ba where security in in travel and security with airplanes you know you imagine that's going to be the top level of of security but i guess um probably a lack of understanding in many of the top levels especially with older businesses which are really outdated um i guess they haven't got there yet for sure like data like the way we see it is a bit of a distant cousin to a lot of things like you're absolutely right you know you think from um outside point of view um they're very safety conscious you mm. think that will translate to everything but you know for them is it's, it's it's engineering of the plane that's where safety mm. what safety means to them yes um and when it comes to data it's just such a different mindset it's such a different pipeline such a different processor different type of skills so those things don't quite translate if you're managing a amazing airline doesn't mean you can you have the, the right skills to do a great mm. data practice. Yeah, super interesting. Okay, mm. something that I want to ask you about from my own personal interest now is we were talking before, just when you joined us, that normally with lots of technological advancements, there's an amazing honeymoon period. And whether that's dating apps, whether it's social media platforms, you know, there's a good few years where everyone loves what's going on. They, they see lots of amazing upsides and then eventually there's a conversation around what are the harm that these things are causing once the dust has settled a little bit and that you know that totally makes sense to always be reevaluating these things however with ai and more specifically chat gpt because that is how most people interface with ai it felt like we had three weeks of this is really fun this is cool to i'm terrified so let me ask you from your point of view with ai leveraging huge amounts huge amounts of data how screwed are we? <laughs> um, I don't think we are at all. Okay, great. If anything, we're going through a period of uh, not enough information. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Um, and the media overblowing the, you know, the the downside of it. You mm-hmm. know, where we're being scared of, you know, people coming out of all these use cases. Sure, you know, there are things that 
you know, we don't know of and we're scared how a machine can do so well, mm. um, can fake as a human being. There's a lot of things that need to catch up, you know, policy-wise, awareness, a um, bit of leveling that needs to be done in terms of understanding how AI gets to today. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't just come out like, you know, in November, even though the the usability like, for an everyday you know, average person to use AI. I think that started in November, mm-hmm. but AI has been around for decades. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, and corporates has been using companies has been using AI. Um, you know, either that's a prediction model mm-hmm. or machine learning or anything um, that has been part of our lives for for a long time. Um, it is a good thing what is happening now, um, even though I think it, it's like the stock market, right? It never mm-hmm. reacts; it overreacts. So we are in the phase of overreacting right now about AI. I'm not saying it's not justified. This awareness is great. Um, the, the, the problem, one of the problems I see with AI is it didn't include all the voices you mm-hmm. know, in its um, research implementation. Um, I was at an event this morning where we talked about it before. Um, it's the data is being used to train, first of all, it's one side of the world, right? It didn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include like China, Russia doesn't get, you know, part of the the mix. You know, African data is not there, um, so it's trained on one point of view of the world. That's interesting. Yeah, and and lots of people talked about. Um, I think one of the the gentlemen mentioned he asked ChatGPT for top ten book recommendations, and he came back with recommendation of ten white male right. books, right? So. I mean, the thing is, did AI courses? Probably didn't. You mm-hmm. know, it, it simply brought to our attention the bias that w- that already exists in the world. That's very interesting. It's just mirroring it. Yeah, it's showing you what's been there already, and we don't like it because no one threw it in our face that bluntly, that mm. easily. So, and I would say that's a good thing. So mm. now we know. You know, there is something that. The bias that, you know, you know, everybody's biased in some ways. You know, you and me both, doesn't matter our background. And especially because our background, we are biased, right? We, we're not, we're not um, aware of that. And and data is like AI or data, you know, especially is what's going to highlight that. And the potential solution to all the scariness of AI is to get more people involved have more data input from all these people mm. um, and then we can have a better AI at the end of the day, right? When we say yeah. AI, it's not like one model, you know. Well, this is it. Yeah. This is it. And it's uh, so many amazing points there in what you've just made, by the way. It's so much interesting stuff in that. I think uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the last two, three years is from a classification and categorization perspective, we've taken steps back backwards because our you know two three years ago it was like no, no no we're talking about computer vision we're talking about image recognition we're talking about machine learning now it's like everything's just ai right and i think that's very problematic because it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all solution across all these different types of technologies and use cases and i think that's uh, something everyone's got to really pay attention to if we're going to understand if we're going to regulate legislate you've got to look at these things in a very precise way and i think that's one of the scary things is that you know, if the government's failed to regulate crypto, I mean, what's what's the likelihood they're going to regulate AI properly? And, you know, I've, my, I've got older parents, right? And it's like, I can so see them getting scammed. Now, don't anyone scam my parents, but I can, I can see it, right? I can see all of these ways in which 
AI could be used badly. But as you said, you know, that's more of a reflection of ourselves than than the technology itself. For sure. Like if you want to do good, AI would help you do good faster, quicker, cheaper. If you want to do bad, you know, it's gonna make, you know, fraudsters mm. a lot smarter. Yes. You know, it's gonna have bigger impact on no matter what you do. Um, so this is unfortunate. It's the dark side of human beings. Mm. It's not AI's fault. It's just a tool. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like what you said before regarding the bias. You know, people get upset about content in their feed, but the algorithm is a mirror of yourself, right? If you don't like what you're seeing, it's because you're engaging with what you don't like, um, which I think is a very very interesting state of affairs. It's almost you know Nietzsche's staring into the abyss. That's the algorithm, right? Um, so a very very interesting one. Um, with what we were saying before around data and how businesses don't necessarily put ethics at the forefront, of course, these are commercial decisions being driven by by you know, profit incentive, which makes total sense. And if the government are unable to legislate in this space effectively, how much more important is it that either businesses building AI or, or using AI are actually emphasizing the ethics more in this case? Um, hugely. Um, I think... The policy is not going to catch up, yeah. you know, um, for various reasons, and it really falls upon us to to regulate, um, and 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 that goes that hasn't changed with a lot of things, you know, like crypto um, or the, or these green talks. You know, it, it's up to the individual company to embrace it or not, mm. right? And with AI, it's the same. If you want to invite AI, you should think about um, what is the pros and cons you need to understand what you're doing first um how it came about um for example i'll give you an example back at bumble when we started looking at natural language processing which is effectively chat gpt mm -hmm. eight years ago is called something a bit more boring mm -hmm. uh, it's a bit harder to implement but before we did that we did a lot of research about you know what's the algorithm what that what it does specifically um, and we try to explain to people, you know, that's, you know, how the algorithm is working, how did it arrive to conclusions, um, what potential bias it might be. Um, so it's the data validation. So, for example, in a dating world, um, equal distribution is an important thing. So you typically see the most attractive 1% getting almost all the activities, mm. right? All the attention on the dating app. And that's not good. So we have a lot of distribution plots to see, okay, how many people are getting votes, getting messages, and what we need to make sure uh, is an equal playing field for people. Really interesting. And and that goes to AI. So if you have an AI algorithm, you need to have like a data feedback to say, okay, I made decisions. Um, can we validate that in a um, scalable way? So looking at the decisions you're making, looking at how it impacts a simple, like you know, uh, example would be if you. Are, I think it was a recent um, case. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I think algorithm algorithm was trying to determine someone guilty or not. Okay. Um, in the court situation, in a criminal situation, and I think black people, unfortunately, was convicted a lot more often. Wow. Than their white white counterpart. Uh, then again, you know, it highlights the um, the biases in yeah. our day to day lives. Um, but then you need to look at that algorithm. You don't want algorithm to carry on your bias. Mm. There's a way for you to fix that because now you have that feedback. Wow, that's that's incredible. Mm. I mean, it's uh, 
I guess that's such a, a great thing about AI. If, it, if we can use it to magnify areas where we need to improve because it's coming at us so thick and fast that it's like, okay, we, you know, this is staring us in the face, as you said before. And that would be a really positive way of saying, well, actually, we need to clearly address what is a very, very, uh, you know, categoric bias across all of these sources. For sure. You know, it's, it's how you use it. What do you want to use it for? If your intention is good... The technology is going to help you. Mm. If you had bad intentions, or if you take an ignorant stand towards it, then it's going to beat you. Yeah. You know? Okay. So no one's got to. So no one ask AI to remove bad intentions because then we're going to be uh, removing a lot of humanity in that way. <laughs> it's a dangerous task to set. Yeah, <laughs> it's more like understanding it. Yeah. And then see what can we do about it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I've got a few questions that I always um, finish up an episode with. So. <laughs> What is the single biggest risk you've taken and what was the outcome? Um, so I guess when I was interviewing for, for Purdue or, or Bomb, uh, Bumble Now, um, I, I, would, I don't know if I could call it taking a risk because it's another spur of the moment decision. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always worked in technology, so very technical side of data. I remember speaking to the hiring manager at the time. We had such an amazing chat. Um, and, and it was quite clear it wasn't technical like that was I was passionate about it was more the data use cases mm -hmm. and she asked me she's like would you rather be a analyst and developer I said like, yeah absolutely and that moment I was like oh <laughs> damn I, I didn't get this job um, and I was living in Paris at the time mm -hmm. so I went back and I was like okay well let's continue somewhere else and then two weeks later she called me and she actually asked for a role to be created wow. uh, as a senior analyst and that is probably the biggest career pivot for myself um, again I don't know if you would consider that taking a risk I mean it just shows being impulsive you know in that moment I guess your life changed right definitely I guess just follow what you think is right or who you are, um, no matter the consequences. Amazing. That's great advice. What are you proudest of? Um, I think it's the people around me. Um, so um, the co-founder I have and the team we build and also the people I met along the way. Mm -hmm. you, know, the, you have no idea how supportive people are. You know, how, you know, most people have no agenda whatsoever. They just want to help you. They want to give back. Um, so I'm really proud of the, you know, the team I have, the people that I have surrounding me. Um, yeah, and the team we built is just, we wanted to have fun when we started 173. We wanted to bring value to people, mm -hmm. to companies, to founders. And it's just having that really positive, you know, we learn from each other, um, that culture and that, you know, small little family we have. That's Nice. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, great. Is there anything you wish you did differently? Um, so, lots. well, I believe you don't regret anything. You made mm -hmm. the best decision at any point in time, given the knowledge you have. But if there's one thing I would do differently, and what we should continuously do is ask more questions, don't give answers. Um the thing I realized, you know, coming out of Bumble, we, we took things for granted. We, we thought we knew everything when it comes to data. Technically, we probably did, <laughs> if I may say so. Yeah, of course. Um, but, but the thing is, if you don't understand people's problem, you know, you might be solving, yeah, you can solve their problem. But if you're not 
talking about their problem in their way, mm. you risk not convincing them. Yes. You know, like so you know understanding the problem and sometimes your your answer may not be right maybe maybe this is isn't something they should do now maybe it's something to wait or maybe it's something you know they should do differently but it's really understanding asking the question asking why you're trying to do this mm. instead of offering a solution even though maybe 99% of the time the solution is correct um it's about asking knowing more before coming to that conclusion that you are correct yeah i love that ask more questions give less answers it's yeah. great yeah. it's great and you're right because there is so much of life when you are an expert in the subject that you can assume right it's so easy to make assumptions and you'll probably get it right 99 percent of the time but it's those edge cases where we learn totally totally it's not like don't give answers but mm -hmm. don't jump to your answers yeah. because you've got a question um yourself as well mm, absolutely okay second to last question all right what does it take to be successful? Uh, I'll tell you when I get there. Yeah. <laughs> that was um, a very humble answer. Oh, <laughs> um, I am fortunate enough to work with a lot of like uh, successful people like yourself, like successful entrepreneurs. Um, what I do see is probably awareness and an objective view on yourself and your business. So um, it, it sounds so simple and so obvious, but... I think from time to time we all fall into this fallacy that um, things are better or you want to paint a better picture, you kid yourself um, and you think you know everything back mm -hmm. to the previous point. But but be aware, not just your strength, but your weaknesses. Yeah. And and having that objective view, like, and, uh, again, data comes, you know, is part of that. But if you don't have that objective view, if you just go with, oh, everything is great, you know, I will have a lot of clients. But if you don't scrutinize the reality, you don't know what you could improve on. Mm, and that's a massive risk in itself. Massive risk, massive blind spot. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Okay, my last one for you is, 15-year-old Candice walks in the room right now. What are you telling her? Um, wow. Um, 15, um, I would say never say no to an invitation. Like, no matter what that is, you know, like uh, people invite you to do something that you're never interested in or a social situation, just go, just do it. You know, even though you think this is the most boring thing, you always learn something, you always meet people, mm -hmm. and they always teach you something. So always say yes. Um, also, otherwise people don't invite you anymore. Yes, that that would have been good advice for 15-year-old me oh, really? as well. Yeah, yeah, and still for 31-year-old me <laughs> now, that's good advice. Um, amazing, thank you so much. What would you like to plug? Uh, so we are 173. Uh, we are a modern analytics agency helping brands uh, make the most out of data, um, extracting value, and we're very end-to-end -end, um, support uh, throughout the data journey from... Um, data strategy, engineering, uh, activation, you know, the whole shebang when it comes to data. So if you need anything, reach out to us. We have a lovely team. I'm happy to chat anytime. Where can people find you? Uh, LinkedIn or 173tech.com. Amazing. Candice, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Roy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section.
As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.